when I first started commuting into Milwaukee to uh, serve at a church on the north side, um, this was before the day where GPS was standard and smartphones were common. And so I, being from northern Wisconsin, a rather rural part of the state, not used to the city. I, I would have considered like Milwaukee as this like really big city and uh, intimidating. And I remember uh, I needed directions to get to this church. And it was my first time going out there. And I printed off, printed out MapQuest directions on paper. And that was a totally different uh, type of uh, following directions compared to like the GPS. If you take a wrong term, turn, you get the Australian accented lady saying, uh, recalculating or whatever, right? I, I, I've always been kind of directionally challenged, especially um, now with Milwaukee. I feel like I finally started to kind of get my bearings more. Milwaukee is built on a grid system and you got the lake out in the east. And so it's kind of easier to know like, okay, I'm here. I know where I'm going. But growing up in a small town where streets were kind of all over the place, I never felt like I could navigate well. And especially trying to go through a big city that was intimidating to me with a set of paper directions where if I make one wrong turn, I'm like going to be lost forever, right? I, it was scary. Like I was like, man, there's buildings everywhere. And now, like, now though, being in the city, as I said, and maybe you've experienced this where you kind of, you start to get your bearings, you know, I know, okay, Layton's here, Loomis goes here, you got 94 and, and, and 894, and you kind of figure out how the city is laid out, and something that was once rather intimidating, it felt like monstrous and crazy, is now very manageable. I kind of, I know my bearings. I got my, my those kind of key milestones that I can hang my hat on. And Revelation maybe can feel a little bit that way to you as well. You come into the book and it just feels chaotic and you're following your map quest paper directions and you're like, where's the turn? How do I get a beast and now there's a harlot and what's happening? A dragon is eating a child? What? Like, but you get your bearings and all of a sudden the book starts to make more sense. And so one of the things that we want to do in these series is as Dan was saying, where we kind of get through a large chunk and we go back and we overview, is to help us all make sure we have our bearings. You're able to look on your phone at a map and kind of see all the roads. When you kind of get that, that big picture view, all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, that makes a lot more sense when I kind of am able to get a, pick, a, a grasp of the whole. And so that's what we want to do today, is to really help us get our bearings, to go over all, all the all of chapter 8 through 11, and just really sit in it. And so I want to start off by doing a bit of an overview of where we've been up until this point. So maybe you've been with us this entire time, or you're new to Crossway. This can kind of be a bit of an overview to help you kind of get your bearings with us. You'll remember the book opens in chapter 1, as most books of the Bible do, with something of an introduction, the first eight verses. John introduces the subject matter. He introduces himself to the churches. And the subject matter being specifically the coming kingdom of Christ. And then after that little opening, we get our first major section of the book, the seven churches, as you see there. Um, in chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, we get a vision of the Son of Man. We get a vision of Jesus. And this vision of Jesus is then meant to fuel and empower the church's obedient response to the message that this Son of Man is about to give them. And so we get a vision of Jesus that's meant to empower, we're meant to see a big view of Jesus that then empowers how we respond to him in each of these messages to the seven churches. So we get seven messages to seven churches. And as you'll see, seven is symbolic in the book. Each of the major sections is broken up by sevens to refer to the completeness of the message. So we get these seven messages to the churches. And in each of the messages to the churches, it closes with a call to conquer. It says, to those who conquer. And this idea of conquering, is, as we see throughout the book, is a call to patient endurance. It's a call to faithfulness. And this is really how the book then starts. It, it, maybe you're familiar with Paul's writings. Um, Paul wrote a good portion of the New Testament. And so, for example, in his epistle to the Ephesians, uh, we oftentimes think of it broken up as the first half is 
more doctrinal heavy, theology heavy, like Ephesians 1 through 3, talking about our election and our salvation by grace and what God is doing to form the church. And then in chapters 4 through 6, it's kind of the practical application of that doctrine. Or in Romans, it's the same sort of thing. The first 11 chapters is doctrinal heavy, and then chapters 12 through 16 is kind of the application. That's how Paul sometimes breaks up his letters. In Revelation, you might think of it kind of similarly, but reversed. In Revelation, specifically chapters 2 and 3, you get the messages to the churches. Churches, this is what you're called to do in light of your different circumstances. You're called to conquer. You're called to have patient endurance. And then in chapters 4 and following, when we get into the visions of the book, that's where we get the theology that's intended to fuel the church's conquering. It's meant to fuel the church's patient endurance. And so we've titled this series, we've titled it, Reality Unveiled, Empowered for Patient Endurance. Really, reality unveiled, you might say, is really the bulk of chapters 4 through 22, where apocalyptic literature is it's, it's unveiling reality to us, right? Heaven's perspectives, heaven's perspective as well as the perspective of the end being brought into the present, unveiling reality, this is what's actually going on, and that reality unveiled in chapters 4 through 22 is to empower the patient endurance called for in chapters 2 and 3. Reality unveiled, empowering us to conquer for patient endurance. And the other thing I would say, too, as we think about reality unveiled, we think about apocalyptic literature as sort of this unveiling of reality as it truly exists, it's helpful then for us to remember we don't want to get totally caught up in all the little details as we're reading through Revelation. That can be a temptation that we have, especially as people who, you know, we come to books of the Bible like the letters or the epistles, and all the little details matter, and we want to dissect everything and understand it really down to the very uh, parts of, of what Paul or what Peter is saying. Okay? But there are other parts of the Bible, too, like we think of poetry, where we wouldn't want to strain every little detail, but it's speaking in more symbolic terms and imagery. We have to remember, when we're in Revelation, we're in something more similar to that. We're dealing with imagery. We're dealing with symbolism. And so we don't necessarily want to get hung up on all the little details, but we want to get what's the big picture here. You might think of Revelation almost like um, experiencing virtual reality. If you were to put virtual reality goggles on, what that does is it kind of immerses you in a different world. And it paints all these different pictures for you of all this kind of crazy stuff. You see people doing these virtual, uh, virtual goggles where they're trying to walk across a beam and it looks like they're going to fall. They're just standing in their living room, right? But now they think they're on like a building, like 20 stories up and stuff. Well, Revelation is like that as well. It's immersing us in a reality, but this reality is not a fictional reality. It's actually a truer expression of what we actually see with our own eyes. You might think of it as an augmented reality. It's taking our reality as we know it, but it's telling us what's really going on. And so as we're immersed, what you want to get away from apocalyptic literature then is not necessarily to strain out all the little details, but what apocalyptic literature is trying to do is create almost like an experience. How do you experience the vision? What do you walk away feeling about the vision? Okay, or you might think of it, some people have compared apocalyptic literature to almost like, we don't have a genre like this in our context. So we have, we have letters, you know, we write letters today. We have law, we have narrative, we have stories. So we have other things that we compare to with other types of writing in scripture. But apocalyptic literature, we don't really have anything like that in our context. And so some people have compared it to help us understand it a little bit better. They've compared it almost to like the drawing of a cartoon, Okay, so if I was to put together like a political cartoon for you and I put together this really kind of awkward, uh, you know, exaggerated drawing of a cartoon of a donkey and an elephant, I don't have to tell you what the donkey and the elephant represent. You all know what those signify. And so you get kind of these pictures that are, that are meant to signify things and some of the details are not really the point. You're supposed to kind of pick up on what's the main imagery here, and other details are just kind of meant to color all that in. And that's how we want to approach apocalyptic literature. We're dealing with symbolism that's supposed to create like a virtual reality, a visual experience that is going to impress us. 
All right? So now, with that said, we've seen the first three chapters, the vision of Jesus and then his messages to the churches. Now when we come to chapter 4 and we start to see reality unveiled, what do we get? In chapters 4 through 7, we get the seal judgments. We get the seal judgments. And specifically, and if you have your Bible, I would, I would encourage you actually to open it up and turn to chapter 4. I'm not going to be having us read it or referencing it, but even if just visually you can kind of track with me to know the sections I'm talking about, that might help you then as you go back and try to read Revelation on your own, okay? So we've talked about chapters 1, 2, and 3 so far, the vision of Jesus. Chapters 2 and 3 are the messages to the churches. Now just visually look down at chapter 4 and 5 and just kind of recall what those sections are about. In chapters 4 and 5, and specifically in chapter 4, we get God on the throne, and it's God alone who is worthy of worship. But then what happens in chapter 5, you remember, is that the Lamb is also said to be worthy alongside of God the Father. And how is he worthy? Because he's been slain. He is the lion, the, the military warrior, who is worthy to open the scroll because he was slain and redeemed a kingdom for himself. And that scroll, you may remember, is representative of like God's plans as if they were written down on a scroll. God's plans, his destiny, and his purposes for history written down on a scroll. And Jesus is worthy to direct the course of history to bring about God's final purposes in history because he has redeemed his people and his creation. And so after we see this vision of 4 and 5 introducing this scroll, this, this scroll thing, okay, Jesus is worthy to have the scroll. He has history in his hand. Then we see that history playing out in chapter 6. So kind of look at chapter 6 and remember what that was all about. Chapter 6, we have the seal judgments. And the seals then are kind of like breaking the seals on the scroll in order to unravel the scroll, to reveal the contents of the scroll. And it's worth remembering here that as we have these judgments that show up in the book, we're going to have the seal judgments, then eventually we're going to have the trumpet judgments, and eventually we'll have the bowl judgments, that we're dealing with what you might call recapitulation, or what we're talking about is kind of a parallelism, a, re a repetition. And so the book of Revelation is dealing with the church age. It's dealing with things that in some sense have happened in the first century to the original readers, but are also ongoing right now and will continue to go until the end of history. We see this in the sense that each of these series of judgments closes with the final judgment, and there's a repetition happening. Every sequence goes through the history of the church, the church age, and closes with the final judgment. We saw that in the section that Hawley read, where the kingdom has fully arrived by the seventh trumpet. But obviously, the rest of the book is going to play that out again. We're going to see the final judgment happen again. And so we kind of see the same thing happening over and over. This is what we mean by recapitulation or parallelism. All these sections parallel each other and tell the same story from a different angle. You might think of it this way. When football season comes around, we've used this illustration before, but it's worth repeating. It's a helpful one. If, if, if football season comes around and you see you're watching TV and you see someone score a touchdown, what they'll oftentimes do on TV or even if you're in the stadium, is show a replay. And when they show a replay of that touchdown, you don't assume that all of a sudden another touchdown was scored and another touchdown was scored every time you see the replay. You understand it's showing the same event from a different angle. And so that's what we have going on in Revelation, is we get the seal judgments, the sequence of, of, God's his, of God playing out history and his judgments from the first seal to the seventh seal, and it's playing out across the church age, and then with the trumpets we get the same thing, and the bowls we get the same thing. All right. And so for the first, the first six seals then, we get these horsemen, we get these judgments of God upon humanity. But then when we come to chapter 7, we get sort of this, um, what we might call a break in the action. Between the sixth and the seventh seal, we get a zoom in on the church specifically. Chapter 6 ends with this question, who can stand? Who can stand before God's judgment? In the first six seals, we've seen God's judgment poured out, and the question then is, who can stand before God's judgment? And so in chapter 7, we get a zoom in on the church. You might think of it this way. We were just talking about football, oftentimes with college football, 
during halftime, what do they do? They have the marching bands come out, and it's amazing what these marching bands can do. They can, they make all these designs, and they, they can kind of like configure cartoon characters, and all these like just crazy stuff, all the marching band people moving around on the field, right? If you have a big zoom lens, and you can see everybody on the field, you can see what the marching band is doing on a whole. They're making all these really interesting designs. But occasionally what they'll do is they'll take the camera angle and they'll, they'll lock into one of the cameramen on the field, say he's looking just at the flute section or just at the percussion section. And that's kind of what we have going on here in the book of Revelation. You get these series of judgments, the first to the seventh seal, is the big picture of what's going on in history. The big picture of what God is doing. And then in between the sixth and the seventh, all of a sudden you go to the cameraman who zooms in on the church. It's, it's, it's going from the forest to the trees. And so in this chapter 7, we get this picture of the 144,000, which is symbolic of the church, and we see that the church is marked and sealed, and they're the ones who can stand before God's judgment. And so in the sealed judgments, what we get is we get, a, we get this, this uh, Christ is worthy to have the scroll. He ha he's the one who controls history. We see God's judgments then being poured out as that scroll is opened, as the seals are cracked open. And yet we see in the zoom-in moment on the church that the church is protected from God's judgment. And then, of course, finally, the seventh seal and the end of all things. This brings us now to the trumpets where we've been going over the last few weeks. And in the trumpets, we have further judgments, whereas the seals and the scrolls would have depicted God's purpose over history, his destiny for history as if it was written down in the scroll, the trumpets you remember, trumpets, are symbolic of, of sounding the alarm. These are warning judgments. These are judgments that we experience in history that tell of a greater judgment to come. If this is what your sin gets you in these trumpet judgments, just imagine what your sin will ultimately get you. And so we have the sounding of the alarm, and at the end of the trumpet judgments, the first six of those judgments, we see that humanity is still unrepentant. And then we get the zoom in here. So just as in the seals we had a zoom in, now we have a zoom in on the church between the sixth and the seventh trumpet judgment. Both of them happening between the sixth and the seventh. Right before we get to the very end in the seven, we're going to zoom in, we're going to go on the ground, and we're going to look at the church. And so what do we see here in this zoom in on the church? Well, we see that God has restrained pouring out his escalated judgment of the seven thunders. And instead, an angel gives John a bittersweet scroll in chapter 10. And this scroll, again, as we saw, this is, this is, Christ's, this is how Christ's kingdom will ultimately be brought to, an, to fruition, to completion. This is a scroll that Christ is worthy to have taken. And how this plan of God is going to come to fruition is through this idea of it being bittersweet. John eats it, which reflects that he is a prophet who is now called to speak prophetically. He's supposed to speak the words of the scroll. And it's a bittersweet scroll. In the one sense, it's sweet because it's the proclamation of the gospel. And yet there's a sense in which it's bitter. And we see how it's bitter when we get to chapter 11. As the zoom-in continues in chapter 11, we see the church depicted as a trampled temple and two martyred witnesses. The church is God's temple that is trampled, and it's these witnesses who speak that prophetic message but are killed for doing so. And nonetheless, the suffering witness of the church results in the end in the conversion of the nations as they fear God and give him glory. And this finally leads us into the seventh trumpet. Remember, the seventh in all these sequences is the very end of all things, when God's kingdom is brought to bear. And that's exactly what we see in the seventh trumpet, that as a church is on mission, spreading the gospel as a suffering prophetic people, that eventually brings about the conversion of the nations, which brings God's kingdom to its full fruition. And so again, we see these parallels between the seals and the trumpets. Each is laying out the history of the world. And in between the sixth and the seventh, you get a zoom in to see the place of the church in the midst of God's judgments. And so we can summarize chapters 8 through 11 this way. God's mission during this age is to prompt repentance through his warnings and through his witnesses. In the trumpets, we see that God is giving these directed calamities 
to try to bring about the repentance of people, which they fail to do. And so that's the warnings, the judgments. God's judgments are warnings to aim at people's repentance. And on the other hand, we have the witnesses. We have the warnings, we have the witnesses. The witness is the church's commission to prophetically suffer. And so God's mission is to prompt repentance through his warnings, his trumpets, and his witnesses, his church. With that big overview in mind then, those big blocks, okay, the messages to the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, those are big sections. Let's go ahead and read chapters 8 through 11. We're going to read the trumpet section, and I'll be kind of giving some commentary as we go through. So beginning in chapter 8, verse 2. Here we have introduced the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets are, as they're introduced, we're going to see God's people's, their prayers coming up as incense, issuing forth into judgment. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel, in in response to seeing God answering those prayers, the incense that God smells as a sweet aroma, he answers by taking the censer filling it with fire from the altar, and he he threw it onto the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumbling and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. That God's judgment is now issuing forth from these prayers. And then we get the first four warning blasts, which are going to bring in all of creation. The earth, the sea, the fresh water, and the sky will be brought to bear in God's warning judgments. Verse 6, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them, to sound the warning blast. The first angel, he blew the trumpet. He, he sounded his warning blast, which consisted in this, that there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up. And all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his alarm. He blew his trumpet, which consisted in this, that something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel, he he sounded his alarm. He blew his trumpet, and it was this. A great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was Wormwood, which means bitter. A third of the waters became Wormwood, bitter that is. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Now the fourth angel, he he sounded his alarm. He blew his trumpet, which was this, that a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining. And likewise, a third of the night. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe! Woe! Woe to those who dwell on earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. You thought that these first warning blasts were bad? Get ready for the next three. These are woes. And so the, 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 the last three trumpets, the fourth, or sorry, the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh are considered woes. And so here in chapter 9, we see a, a horde of demons depicted as an army of scorpion, scorpion-stinging locusts that are unleashed upon unbelievers to torment them. So chapter 9, verse 1, and the fifth angel, he blew his trumpet, he sounded his alarm. And what did he see? A star fallen, an angel that is, 
We see that stars depict angels in Revelation. An angel descended from heaven to earth, and he was given the key, the authority, over the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. There's just this pillowing smoke coming out of the shaft. And then from the smoke came locusts on earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. That's what locusts normally do. But what were they told to do? They were only those people. They were told to, to harm only those people who do not have the seal of God, that is, unbelievers, that is, those who are not marked by God, like the 144,000 on their foreheads. These locusts were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. It will run away from them. And then we see their description in verse 7 and following. They're like these monsters. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel, the demon, the fallen angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon, which means destroyer, most likely Satan here. Now in the sixth trumpet, or the second woe, we get the picture of the final judgment. The six in these sequences, the sixth seal, the sixth trumpet, and the sixth bowl are always a depiction of the final judgment right before the seventh when God's kingdom is realized. And so here we get the final judgment depicted in terms of the destruction of a great battle parallel with Armageddon in the bowls. The first woe has passed, verse 12. Behold, two woes are still to come. And here's that second. Then the sixth angel, he blew his trumpet. He sounded his alarm. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000, 2 million. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode on them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the, of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. What, is, what does mankind do in response to this? Well, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, they did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. They didn't heed the warnings, in other words. What's going to happen next? And so here we zoom in on the church. We break from the sequence of seven in between the sixth and the seventh trumpet to zoom in to see what the church is doing in this moment. And then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had that little scroll. He had the little scroll that's open in his hand. 
the, the, the scroll that the lamb was worthy to take, the one that has the, the destiny of history written in it. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders of judgment, like another sequence of seven judgments, they were sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write it down as if this is going to be executed. These judgments are going to happen. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal it up. Don't execute it. Seal up what the seven thunders have said. Do not write it down. Humanity is unrepentant in the face of God's judgments, but now God is going to bring in his secret weapon. And so the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, he raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. The kingdom will come. But in the day of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Just as he announced to his servants, the prophets, the scroll will come to reality, in other words. How? How is God's purpose going to be brought about? How will the scroll be fulfilled? Well, verse 8 tells us, Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and, and I told him to give me that, the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat the scroll. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. It's a pleasant message, it's the gospel. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. That by eating the scroll, it symbolizes that John is being commissioned as a prophet, representing the church's role, as we'll see now in chapter 11. How is it a bittersweet scroll? We see the bitterness, the bitter suffering, now in chapter 11. Then I was giving, given a measuring rod, like a staff, a measuring rod to mark out those who are gods. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God. Here the church depicted as God's temple, as well as the altar and those who worship there. Mark out God's temple. Mark out Joby. Mark out Nadia. Mark out Josh. Mark out Ryan and Natalie. Go ahead and take the rod and mark out my people who are my temple. But don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city. They'll trample the citizens of my new Jerusalem, my bride. They're going to trample her for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees, those anointed by the Spirit, and the two lampstands, the lights to the nation that stand before the Lord of the earth. These two witnesses, who are they? They're Dan. They're Steve Radomsky. They're Jennifer. They're the Denos. They're Kyle and Emily Barrow. And if anyone's going to harm these folks, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how they are doomed to be killed. The church is protected. They're measured. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. They are, they are going to issue judgment on the world that rejects the gospel. And when they finish, when they finish that testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. They will be faithful even unto death if it's so demanded of them. They will conquer by being conquered. 
And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be buried. They will be shamed. They'll be despised. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. That the church will be hated for their prophetic ministry. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on all those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them, that the church is vindicated. The church has victory over death, even in the face of death. And in response to seeing this, at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and humanity responds to the church's witness in God's judgment this way. The rest were terrified, or we might say they feared, like they feared God, and they, they gave glory to the God of heaven. They repented at the witness of the church. And so through this, the scroll is brought to completion. God's purposes are brought and finished. And so we see then now the final seventh trumpet, the completion of all things is brought about. The second woe has passed before the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel, he blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces, and they worshipped God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. And notice, not just anymore, it's who is and who was and is to come. No longer is there who is to come because God has come. For you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations raged. But your wrath came, you raged against them, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. The church is commissioned for suffering witness. And as we see God's plan brought about, his purposes being brought about, we see that through the church's prophetic commission of suffering, even to the point of death, should it be demanded, the nations are converted. They are brought to repentance. And how are the nations converted? By seeing the church's faithful witness even in the face of suffering. It's by seeing our suffering and our confidence before death based on the victory of Christ over death that they are converted. How does our suffering convert the nations, you might say? Well, it's by, it's in, in a way, our suffering adorns the gospel by reflecting the very nature of the gospel. It adorns the gospel by reflecting Christ's own suffering and his victory over death. As one commentator, Richard Baucom, says, he summarizes this section this way that I think is really well put. He says, The prophetic ministry of the church will affect, that is, will bring about the conversion of the nations to God. This is the heart of the revelation contained in the scroll. The heart of the revelation's message that the church is called to suffering witness, which, by virtue of its participation in Jesus' sacrificial witness, can bring the nations to repentance. As Jesus' witness is extended universally in the life and death and preaching of the church, Jesus' sacrificial witness is extended in our own suffering witness. God's kingdom can come to the nations. And so last week I closed briefly, we had a jam-packed sermon, I closed briefly by saying, asking this question, what would it look like if we more self-consciously conceived of this as our actual commission, the commission to be prophets who suffer. 
And I suggested that this could have a rather revolutionary effect, revolutionary implications, especially in our rather American evangelical, comfortable, triumphalistic um, disposition that we often have. And so I want to give us some closing applications as I promised uh, last week to kind of be able to spend a little bit more time on application. Let me give us uh, just a handful of applications then as we think about this. The first is that you notice that this text talks about the church as prophets who torment those around them. Verse 10 in chapter 11 says that these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers, the unbelievers. Or as the message paraphrase puts it, it says these two prophets pricked the conscience of all the people on earth. They made it impossible for them to enjoy their sins. How do we torment those around us, in other words? We make it impossible for them to enjoy their sins. We're a bother to them. And so I think one of the first applications we can think about is what does it look like if we're actually going to live out this commission? It's to ask, are we a torment to the world around us, a torment in a good way to the world around us. In both the words we speak, the gospel that we're preaching, a call to repentance, a call to submit to the lordship of Christ, and in our deeds, do we live, do we live in such a way that torments people? It, it stands out to them. It, it, it pricks their consciences to see the way that we live, a, a good sort of unsettling presence. Are we, are we a good sort of unsettling presence in our community? by our lifestyle, the way we stand out? Do we embody a value, the values of a different kingdom that prick the consciences of those around us? But even as we do so, sometimes we can, we can err in being, we can be a torment to those around us, but in a bad way. And so I want to remind us that the way that we're a torment to those around us, notice in verse 3, is that these prophets are clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is sort of this is something that people would wear when they were very sorrowful and very repent. They were embodying repentance, and so our posture in bringing torment to the world around us isn't a posture of sort of self-righteousness because we somehow think we're better than them and we have it all together. If anything, people who are who know a salvation by grace know that we're not better than anyone else, and so we're not we're not bringing a torment to the world around us because we disdain the world because we view them as our enemies. That we, we see the world going in crazy ways. And granted, the world is going nuts right now, okay? We are going in crazy ways. People are, people, the ideologies of this world right now are, are, are insane. But we don't look at them as enemies and people to hate and people to disdain. We say, but for the grace of God, there go I. We don't approach them with animosity as like a culture war and there are enemies to be defeated. They're people to be one with the gospel. We're broken over the world's brokenness. We're not sneering prophets, but like Jeremiah, we're weeping prophets. Like Jesus, we say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, would that you allow me to gather you. Thirdly, I think this text undercuts the tendencies of theological liberalism. What do I mean by that? Um, there's a great book by a guy named Gresham Machen. It's, it's spelled as if it was Gresham Machen. Um, he has a book that came out, I think it was like in the 30s, called Christianity and Liberalism. And when, he, when I say liberalism and when he says liberalism, we're not using that term in a political sense, but in a theological sense. And what we mean by theological liberalism is that's the attempt to basically try to make Christianity um, palpable, uh, comfortable, acceptable to the culture around us. So you kind of like, you kind of shave off all the rough edges that brush up against culture. And so Machen talks about this in his book. I would recommend it. It's a really good book. And the way the old school version of, Christ, of, of liberal, Christian liberalism, theological liberalism, would be to kind of get rid of anything supernatural. Okay? Get rid of Jesus' resurrection. Get rid of the virgin birth. Um, get rid of anything that would kind of go against a lot of people's scientific sensibilities. Today, we have a new school version of Christian liberalism, theological liberalism, and that is get rid of any sort of traditional sexual ethics or any sort of traditional gender ideas that are taught in, in the Bible. The idea behind theological liberalism, though, is to say we want to try to make our Christianity as fitting to the culture as possible. As, as, as just, there's really no, we're going to get rid of all the hurdles. We're going to make it really kind of fitting and natural and 
really to kind of get rid of any sort of suffering or friction. We don't want, we don't want there to be friction between our faith and what culture says. What does this passage say, though? It assumes that the church is called to suffer. There's going to be friction. They're going to find us to be a torment. They're going to disdain us. They're going to leave our bodies unburied because they hate us so much. This passage doesn't make sense if we're working from the assumption that we have to kind of accommodate our faith in order to fit the times. We don't avoid suffering. We don't smooth out causes for disdain. Anything that would go against the church and culture. But secondly, or or additionally, we see that suffering is not a detriment to the church's mission as well. If on the one hand we kind of want to smooth it out, on the other hand we may want to avoid it because we think suffering is a detriment to the church's mission. Uh, Just this week I came across an article that was uh, shared by Christianity Today where they were reporting on a sociological uh, research that was done. Well, what they found is that they found they did a study of the church in, in many different countries, in many different settings over many different years. And what they found is that the church actually thrives and does the best in contexts where they don't have a lot of privilege socially and politically, um, where they don't have a lot of standing in society, and when they're actually, um, when the culture is hostile to the church. The church does the best. It grows, it flourishes, it's the strongest when it is in a country or in a culture, a society, where the society is actually hostile to Christianity. And the church does the worst in contexts where the church has a lot of political power and social privilege. That's a sociological study that corroborates exactly what we see theologically in this passage. Sometimes we can, we can kind of see the way culture is going. We can see like, man, there's, a, there's an increasing amount of hostility towards Christianity. Christianity is not as accepted. It's increasingly marginalized. And we can fear because we think that that's actually a hindrance to mission. Like if we're opposed, if there's hostility towards us, that's going to hamper mission. And so sometimes we can, with that mindset, we can start to think that, you know, our mission hinges on us having political and social favor or having a lack of suffering and hostility. And then when we start to think that way, we can easily slip into a desperation in order to preserve preserve those things, as if everything hinges on that. And then it's easily easy then for our mission to become those things. Our mission becomes political or our mission becomes a culture war. And again, I'm not against having a positive influence on society. Don't mishear me. But we slip into making that the fundamental aspect of our mission as if our mission hinges on that. And then those things, when those things become paramount, we can easily get dragged into questionable activities and our judgment can get impaired. We can get ourselves into a lot of trouble. That when we believe our witness depends on our cultural dominance, we can ironically sacrifice our witness in order to maintain our cultural dominance. But what we find is that hostile circumstances, they're not just a necessary byproduct of our mission. They actually here seem to be fuel for our mission. As Tertullian said, one of the early church fathers, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more you persecute the church, the more the church bleeds, the more the church grows. And so we have to set our expectations differently. This may mean that we have to set our expectations differently, understanding that this is the natural habitat of the Christian environment, of the Christian mission, is to be one where we face hostility. As, as Paul said in Acts 14, that it's through many trials we will enter the kingdom of God. Or as he says in 2 Timothy 3, that those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. We might ask, like, why haven't we faced as much hostility? Is it because things have just been great? Or maybe we haven't been as faithful in our mission as we should have been. This is the call to conquer in the book of Revelation. Conquer, a word that would normally mean kind of military, coercive dominance, is actually flipped to mean faithfulness even at the expense of being dominated. And finally then, we have motivation to be faithful, to conquer in this way, 
at the very end of this section. Whereas we see the seventh trumpet come, we see what is before us. We see the kingdom coming to fruition, the kingdom of this world, the, kingdom, the kingdoms that we see right now in this world, they will be transformed and ultimately God's kingdom will take over. As each of the messages to the churches, you'll remember when you, in chapters 2 and 3, when you have the messages of the churches, every time that he gives, Jesus gives them the call to conquer, what does he do? He motivates them by holding out the promise that if you conquer, you'll be given the crown of life. You'll be made a temple, a pillar in the temple of God. And so here we also have that promise come through, that as we're called to conquer, faithfulness even at the extent of, of, of suffering and death, the promise is held out, in verse 18, for the rewarding of your servants. There is a reward that awaits us, believer. That's the hope. As, as the apocalyptic literature is unveiling reality, reality to us, it wants, one of the things it wants to, to unveil to us is the future promise that awaits us. To those who are faithful, to those who conquer, we have a home in the new creation, as Peter says, where righteousness dwells. Won't that be amazing to, to live in a home where righteousness is dwelling? And so as we celebrate the gospel and we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper itself tells of this. As Jesus says in Matthew 26, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That not only does the Lord's Supper look back to remember what Jesus has done in dying for us, the bread and the juice depicting his death given for us to pay for our sins, not only does the Lord's Supper look back, but the Lord's Supper then also looks forward. Not only is Jesus paying for our sins to forgive us and to, to justify us by faith, but it's also purchasing the kingdom that we are so, we have such the benefit to be recipients of. And Jesus says, I will, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day. Jesus won the kingdom through his death, purchasing us, but also purchasing that future reward for us. And so as we partake of the Lord's Supper today, let that be your focus. Let those promises encourage you that as we are called to this commission of prophetic suffering, it is a commission that is worth it. It will bring about the conversion of the nations. That as people see us in our, in our faithfulness, and our commitment to the gospel, even to the point of being willing to embrace disdain and marginalization or whatever it may be for us, that that will make the gospel more and more commendable. May we live as people who make the gospel increasingly commendable to those around us. 